for those who fish. This is the Drake Cast, a voice for fly fishing culture and conservation. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode is brought to you in part by the adventure guides at the 11 Experience. Picture this. You're in the Bahamas, the sun's setting behind you, and you see a big tarpon roll. The tide was coming in, and, you know, we're anchored up, we're in a deep spot. But the chef says it's time for dinner. What do you do? Well, if you're on an adventure with the 11 experience... Made a cast, and I stripped out some line, and my line was going out towards the mangrove with the tide, so I, I just walked into the dining room with my rod sat down at my dinner and I was holding my rod in one hand and eating a filet mignon steak with the other. Then I got a hit, setting the hook from the dining room table. <laughs> the line's going out the door, out the back of the boat, and we can hear this big tarpon jumping in the distance. That's really cool. That was fun. Redefine surf and turf with the 11 experience. For a complete list of their operations worldwide, visit elevenexperience.com. Or let's say you're not as into the whole tarpon fishing from a boat thing. Maybe you prefer to heed the call from land. I was in Costa Rica at a surf break there. This is Andy Stepanian, the co-founder of Howler Brothers, another sponsor of our show. And he's talking about the moment that inspired him to start putting roosters and purple shrimp and flowers on old-timey long-sleeve shirts. We're eating breakfast. That's when we heard these... You know, howler monkey, a powerful sound. And whenever I'm hearing that, I knew I was doing something that I loved. And so when we hit on howler, we knew this was the essence of what we were trying to do. Ever since that first primordial scream in the Costa Rican jungle, Howler Brothers has been designing clothes for the moments before, during, and after your adventure. If you want the full story behind the brand, check out episode number 50 of this podcast. If you want to be wearing the coolest shirt at your friend's next grill out, check out their website at howlerbros.com. Heed the call. And as always, ever since the very beginning, this episode is sponsored by our good friends at Scott Fly Rods. The other day, I got on the phone with Amy Hazel, the co-owner of Deschutes Angler in Maupin, Oregon. Where we fish for steelhead and beautiful rainbow trout. But when Amy isn't chasing Samanids, she's in the middle of the South Pacific. I host trips to Christmas Island. And it was on these trips that... I fell in love with Scott Flyrod. Because... They're light, and it feels like you're casting a 10-weight when you're actually throwing a 12-weight line and casting the GTs. If you want to bag a GT, which, I mean, come on, we all do, you got to bring out the big guns. You're walking the flats, and all of a sudden your guide starts going, and you look up two black shadows just moving at about 20 miles an hour on the edge of a big flat. And of course, your heart is just beating out of your chest. You have one chance to get that fly in front of them. When you only got one shot, make sure you're using the best and the lightest tools out there. Check out the new Sector and the rest of the Scott Quiver at scottflyrod.com. I got to start this episode with a confession. I really just don't fish that much anymore. I'm living in a huge city, and I've been kind of lazy about it. 
The few times I do get out, I find myself just wanting to fish, meaning I don't like worrying about recording the trip, which has resulted in me taking a five-month break from this podcast. But while stuck in these fishing doldrums, I've picked up a new hobby. Instead of hunting down rising trout, I stock Craigslist and eBay for old fishing gear from the comfort of my home. Antique reels, boxes of miscellaneous flies, the occasional rod. I even found a website that sells all the great things that TSA confiscates from unsuspecting travelers. It's definitely not as good as the real thing. Pales in comparison to catching a fish. But there is a certain thrill that I get when I click purchase, and again when the package arrives at my apartment 3 to 15 days later. Thankfully, this last weekend I went back to Wisconsin to get out with my father and actually fish. We nailed some smallies, saw a couple muskie, and I just refilled my fishing reservoir, which over the next few months will slowly trickle out until I'm able to fish again. But while I was home, I was also able to practice my newfound hobby. Test one, two, three. Test one, two, three. Hello. Is that right there for you? Sure. And these two passions I have fishing and collecting fishing gear, they intersected at the house of a family friend. Can we just start with you saying name, who you are, where we are? My name is Mark Wise. He's a short, wiry guy who hardly ever sits still long enough to interview. He's nearly 65, but still runs marathons and often leaves for month-long bike trips across the country. But Mark's going through a bit of a change right now. I've just moved to a new house on 810 Chauncey Street in Eau Claire lived at my prior house that I built for 40 years in Fall Creek. Mark's old house sat on 65 acres on the banks of the Eau Claire River in west central Wisconsin, not far from where I grew up. But he just moved within the city limits, and he just has much less space. The lot's 40 feet wide. Like I tell people, we're taking a one-gallon pitcher and putting it into a quart jar, so it's, uh, it's an adjustment, but it's going well. And I was at Mark's house because a couple days prior, he'd sent me a picture of a taxidermied brown trout from the early 80s. It was still in beautiful condition. Fins fully intact, the original paint job didn't need any touching up, and below the fish was a little plaque, which read, Caught September 1, 1984, Smith River, Montana. And I wanted to know about this fish. So that was a brown trout. I can't remember the size of it offhand, but... The fish taped out at 23 inches and was an estimated 6 pounds. Um, it was caught out in Montana. The browns, at that time of year, they were catching on 18 hooks. But I assume it was a great challenge getting that brown trout in on a fly rod. And one more thing. On the plaque is the statement, this is Gus. And I don't know the story of that, but I think it was probably the largest fish caught and uh, I think he just named it Gus. I am now the proud owner of Gus, which fell victim to Mark's move into town. It's my first piece of genuine taxidermy. I can now look at my wall where it hangs above a pile of underused rods still in their tubes, and it brings me great pleasure. It was Mark's dad who caught this fish some 35 years ago. But I also knew that hidden somewhere, Mark had a whole boatload of other fishing paraphernalia that probably wasn't going to survive the move into town. Old bamboo rods in pristine condition, reels galore, a fly tying kit that might have some polar bear fur. And like a vulture soars above a wounded animal, I was circling, 
just waiting for Mark to let it all go. I, uh, I threw around that six weight for a while. Did you? And I knew about all this fishing gear because a couple of years prior, I had the chance to toss around one of the old rods while fishing with Mark. But it's the action on the rod is nice? beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, like a really, really nice slow. And the way that all of these rods became members of the Wise family is an interesting story. I don't know if this is true. Your father giving your mother fly rods for Christmas? Is no, no, this for true? her birthday. Oh, for her birthday. Yeah, yeah. What's the story there? Well, because my mom needed a fly rod, but he knew that she doesn't fish, so then somebody had to use the fly rod, so that it worked out good for him. So. And this story starts long ago. I mean, they've been fishing with him since the 50s. As Mark's mom grew older year by year, the collection bloomed. And it was during this fishing trip with Mark that I really planted the seed that I was interested in all this old fishing gear. Not to sell, not to stick in a display case, but to bring back to life by fishing it. And lo and behold, 10 days ago, I received word that Mark was ready to part with his father's belongings. And much like a young avian scavenger that comes face to face with its soon-to-be first victim, I didn't really know how to react. Do you go in right for the kill and just take it? I knew all this gear meant a lot to Mark because it really told the history of his family. So I was over at his house to talk to him about the fishing, his family, the fly rods. So the rest of this episode is the story of the Wise family, where they fished, where these rods went. Throughout, we'll hear music from our friend Russell Peterson's new album, Steal from the Rushes. Longtime listeners will remember Russell from episode number 25. It's old-timey banjo music, and I really just think it fits the story. At the end of this episode, we'll talk a little bit more about Russell. Before Mark's dad had these rods, his grandpa, Ralph, who was born at the turn of the 20th century, had fished them. At that time, people hunted, they fished. He was an avid bird hunter and a deer hunter, and I think people that hunted fished because it was a different season. Ducks, pheasant, bass, trout, muskie. And my grandfather started with a bamboo cane pole, actually for muskie fishing. But all I know is he talked about a cane pole with a sucker and if a muskie hit it, the pole would take off, and eventually the pole would stick out of the water, and they'd go and retrieve it. There could be some lore to it, but I don't think so. When Mark's grandpa wasn't chasing down deer in a Model T or cane poling for predators, he was working at a local bank. So the bank was started in 1903. His father was the president of the bank, but his father died when my grandfather was 18. And my grandfather was uh, in college at Madison, and so he ended up quitting school, and then he became president of the bank when he was 18. Which at the time was unheard of. Fall Creek is a farming community, still is and always has been. So Mark's grandpa, Ralph, helped finance the Roaring Twenties when credit was cheap and Europe needed American goods to rebuild their war-torn continent. Basically, you approve loans. And everything was pretty dandy until... On October 29, 1929, the stock market crashed. Panic gave way to despair. Overnight, the richest country in the world had spawned bread lines. And 
at that time, there was a run on the banks and people wanted their cash. Well, banks don't have the cash to give out. And so all banks locked their doors and they only let customers come in one at a time. It's more complicated than this, but basically a bank only has so much money at any given time. All of your savings aren't actually sitting in the bank. They're loaned out to people who need the money. And in Ralph's case, it was mainly farmers in the Fall Creek area. So right after the stock market crash, what was happening at the time was the first people who got to the bank would pull out all of their money until it was gone. And the bank didn't have anything left. The customers would come in and say, uh, well, I want my money. And he says, well, we don't have your money. You see Bill's farm across the street, that's where your money is. So basically he convinced people that their money was safe and they would have it, but there's not enough money in the vault to give them money right away. I can't overstate how big of a deal this was because in Eau Claire County and all around the country, banks were shutting down. People's life savings were gone like that. At that time, I think there was 15 banks in Eau Claire County. And the day after Black Friday or whatever they called it happened, there was three left. Testing the waters with our best. Day in and out, there is no rest. While this may seem like a historical economics lesson, just bear with us for a couple minutes because it all relates to the fishing that's about to come. Then there was farmers that couldn't pay their mortgage because they didn't have money during the Depression. And at that time, he could have owned half the farms in Eau Claire County because the farmers would come in and said, well, here's my deed, I can't pay the bill. And his response was as well, what am I gonna do with your cows? Go back out there and milk your cows and you can pay me when you get the money. So he had a great following because everybody knew that he could have taken their farms Another bank took the farms. Everybody's close-knit, they know who took the farms and who didn't. But he was an amazing guy that it was about other people that was important. And while the Dust Bowl ravaged the heartland and soup kitchens stretched around the block, Grandpa Ralph would leave town for some much-needed R&R and head west. Well, more Middle West. During the Depression, he would drive to north or south Dakota. Where Grandpa Ralph would hunt pheasants and fish. But ultimately went out to Montana. And I don't know how he ultimately got to Yellowstone, but I assume one of his friends said, you gotta go there. But pretty soon after, quote, discovering, unquote, Montana, bombs hit the westernmost United States, in Hawaii. On December 7th, 1941, Japan struck first and declared war afterwards. Sneak sky and sea raid on Pearl Harbor, America's mid-Pacific naval bastion. And while the country's mass mobilization of workers and soldiers during World War II may have brought an end to the Great Depression, there were definitely some strings attached. You had to save your peach pits to be turned into charcoal. Thousands of young men left for a war they'd never return from. And the amount of gas available to citizens was extremely limited. And to get to Montana, you needed more than a few tanks of leaded petroleum. There was rationing, and farmers had unlimited gas coupons. <laughs> these farmer friends of his would give him these coupons to get gas so he could drive out west to go fishing. 
So you know those farmers whose land Ralph didn't take? They paid him back the best way they could, with illicit gas coupons. Full circle. Totally worth the buildup, right? But by this point, it wasn't just Grandpa Ralph that was going out to Montana. My grandfather would always go out there first, and my father was great for tying flies, and he could copy any hatch out there. And I remember that my grandfather would say, well, the hatch was... There's blue wings, maybe size 16, but they got this little speck of gray on their underbelly. And so my dad would spend time before he went out there making flies that looked like the hatch that people were catching stuff on. Not too long after, Mark, his mom, and his siblings began joining the patriarchs. We'd always fish the uh, Yellowstone River in an area called Buffalo Ford, because apparently that's where the buffaloes crossed. Buffalo Ford is actually on the Lamar River right before it joins the Yellowstone, but it's still definitely in the same watershed. The stream was fast enough that it was kind of scary getting to the sandbar in the middle of the river, because you had to go through a deep spot in the river, and usually two or three of us went side by side, and of course my dad broke the water for us, and the water was almost up to the top of my waders, and the thing is, is that if you slip, you're full of water and then it's fast. So just getting across that river, it was a scary part, but once you got across that dip, it was exciting. They'd stock up on gear from Dan Bailey's fly shop in Livingston and fish all of the now famous rivers that cross Montana and Wyoming. And at the time, there was hardly anybody else out there. I mean, it was just incredible fishing. We only used dry flies and like a dream. I mean, the fish, you could see them rising before you got there. And as soon as you put a fly down, they'd hit it. I mean, so it was just amazing. And the river was fast and you're using 18 hooks and you don't horse a big fish in fast water. And so it was just fun bringing these fish in on this light tackle. Well, like all good things, their fishing paradise blew up. And this was back in the 60s. More anglers, less solitude. So Grandpa Ralph found a new section of the state to invade during his summers off. My grandfather ended up going out to White Sulphur Springs, Montana, sort of between Livingston and Great Falls. So it's sort of in the center of the state. It's on Highway 12, which is the same road that goes through Eau Claire. And he had a trailer out there. And he was a very social guy, so he knew everybody. And almost everybody were huge ranchers out there. And the ranchers all have cricks on their property for irrigation. The ranchers had no interest in fishing, but he did. Since he knew these ranchers, he got permission to fish on these private, huge ranches. And my dad would then go, and then we'd also go, and, and a lot of times we'd have the key to the gates and stuff like that. This guy knew how to connect with the working man. We were right on Sheep Creek, and as kids, there was two big holes that were just right near the trailer, and we'd go to the holes with Velveeta cheese and put Velveeta cheese on a hook, and we'd come back with 30 and 40 trout. Those were all brookies in the creek there, and it got to the point where the parents got sick of cleaning them, so they told us that we had to clean our own fish, and that sort of slowed down how many fish we caught.
And this is where the story turns away from Grandpa Ralph and more towards Mark's old man, Steve Wise. My dad was super into it, and he actually made his own rods. He tied his own flies, and basically he could take any bug and he can make the same thing with the fly. And that's a real artist being able to do that. And I think for him, it was a challenge of making the fly that caught the fish. Plus, it's exciting. I mean, you know, it's exciting to go out and catch fish. My dad knew all the cricks, and most of the cricks on these farm fields were irrigation ditches, and they were probably five feet wide or less, and they were grass high. So a lot of times you're fishing with flies, but you couldn't see the water. And so you'd sort of roll the fly in and let it go. And if you heard something, you'd try to set the hook. And when he, we fished, I mean, if I caught one, he'd catch 10. I mean, when you're on the Yellowstone River and they're coming up so hard, I mean, anybody can catch fish there. But when it's hard to catch fish, he caught fish. And while Mark's grandpa and father have passed away, their legacy lives on in this fishing gear which Mark has agreed to part with. And I had to ask him how he felt about letting it all go. Um, it's sort of a bittersweet thing of getting rid of it. But the thing is, I know that you have a real interest in fishing. And I think my grandfather would like you to have them. Because you could use them. And, uh, and knowing that there's love in it. I got up, closed the gap between us, and embraced Mark in a hug. To break the silence, I asked Mark what his relationship with fishing is like these days. Actually, I hadn't fished for years until your dad got me fishing again. And, and I like fly fishing. I love popper fishing. And we've been fly fishing for bass, and that's been very fun. And in the last few months, I haven't been out yet because I'm remodeling this house. But I'm hoping to spend more time with your dad fishing because we have a great time. It's not always about fishing, but it's a great time. Does it take you back? You know, I guess I wouldn't say that, but I have great memories of fishing as a kid. But I just like fly fishing, and I, I do well throwing the fly, and I can put the fly where I want it. And it's fun when you can do that. We are here. Third day of fishing, Craig, Montana. I recently took a trip to Montana to fun fish with a couple of my friends. Below the dam, we finally found some risers, some consistent risers, eating midges. But it wasn't just me making the journey out there. Alongside my state-of-the-art Scott fly rods, I'd also brought one of Mark's dad's old hardy bamboo rods. Let's see if this old rod still has some magic in it which I was not used to casting. Oh God, it's so slow. You just gotta slow your stroke down so much. And like a shoddy craftsman, I kept blaming the missed opportunities on my tools. It's just a little too far for me to cast, man. 
and we're we're dragging. While only 35 feet away from the steadily rising fish, I couldn't make the cast. Okay, Paul has gotten out of the boat. He's now grabbing the anchor and is going to slowly bring us closer to the fish I cannot quite cast to. That that the rod can't quite cast to. A few more casts. I'm floating right through him. A few more shots blown. It's a tippet. Come on, right there. Until? There we go. A monster 13-inch rainbow finally fell victim to our imitations. Putting a nice bend in the bamboo. (laughs) Seeing as the rod was at least as old as my father, I figured a tired fly line would pair well with it. Look at the bend. This proved to be a mistake. As my fishing partner went in for the scoop, I heard something snap, but didn't pay it too much attention. Oh, Jesus, dude, grab the line. It snapped at the leader. Grab the line. Grab the line. On my reel was the entire fly line. At the tip of the rod was the butt section of my leader, attached to a broken chunk of fly line. Between the reel and the tip of the rod was nothing but empty guides. The, the line snapped. There we go. <laughs> dude, the actual fly line just snapped. And the leader popped off. <laughs> oh my god, it broke off. Of... <laughs> but because the eyes are so small, the fly line stayed in there. <laughs> yeah, dude. Here you go, buddy. Thanks for the rods, Mark. May your father's memory live on in the fish I almost lose. Music for this episode was written and recorded by Russell Peterson and appears on his album, Steal from the Rushes. You can find a link to his music on our show notes. You can see him live with his band, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, at a few concerts this summer in Wisconsin. Thanks for letting us use your music, Russell. And thank you for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. Mm-hmm.